This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and Australia has never come to terms with the atrocities that were done to Indigenous people following European arrival. Well may we say God save the Queen because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 124 for Friday 10th of April 2020. I'm Jeremy Sear, and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening to the country, what's likely to happen, and hopefully what we can do about it. Tonight's guest host is a returning guest host, uh, Mr. Tom Ballard. Welcome back, Tom. Hello. Hello, Jeremy. Hello, dear listeners. What's up? I'm getting... <laughs> your camera is falling all over. I'm getting this dramatic, like... <laughs> this, this, you, you, know, you might think it's a very static interaction, two people just staring at each other through a Skype, but not with the camera work you're doing. It's... I just try to make it exciting for you. I'm going, um, you know, I'm going handheld. David from the movie show would hate it. Oh, but I'm, I'm just trying to get, you know, give you a little bit of action. Well, I'm assuming that what's about to happen is something horrific because we're getting that, like, we're getting <laughs> the, the shaky bit, which implies that, you know, you're being watched in a sneaky fashion and somebody's going to leap out at you and, I don't know, drag you back to ancient Scotland or something. As I understand, is what nothing terrible is going to happen, Jeremy. Everything's going great. What are you talking about? Let's talk about Australian politics. <laughs> ah, you didn't expect that. So, we're all in quarantine still, which means that this can just be one of the, I don't know, two or three podcasts that's recently mentioned the, the pandemic. Yep. You, you've, you've, you've done a couple of episodes recently. I'm sure that you've uh, barely touched on it. It's barely been a subject <laughs> worthy of mention. My, my episode this week was with Caleb Bond, which I recorded weeks ago when I was in Adelaide, back when the biggest problem facing the world was uh, the climate crisis. Um, and then, uh, I mean, obviously there was still, you know, coronavirus stuff happening, but not to me directly, therefore it wasn't that important. Um, and it was bizarre put, listening that back and editing it and putting it out there into the world because it's just sort of, um, you know, he was just espousing his his conservative beliefs and his worldview. And, um, you know, I guess the one small good thing about the moment is we're seeing a lot of that collapse and that logic and that insane logic sort of disintegrate a bit uh, around our eyes and uh, this conservative government having to do something about the fact that the economic order doesn't really provide for people during a pandemic but um, I guess the fear is how long that's all going to last and how quickly they're going to snap back to being the worst. Well since you can't have Caleb back today to do a follow-up yeah. hey Caleb all that stuff you said how does how's that how's that holding up mate? <laughs> <laughs> The free of the markets, the free of the people. That was the uh, takeaway I took from uh, Caleb's conversation. The free of the markets, the free of the people, Jeremy. I mean, the IPA is out there putting out those videos declaring that uh, actually we should be just reopening the country right away. Yeah. Everything's fine. They're bored. I'm bored. I work at the IPA and I'm bored. This sucks. Let's just get going again. Come on. If we lose a few boomers, so be it. Well, did you see the thing in the financial review today where somebody called John Kehoe wrote, like, I'll quote, The coronavirus overwhelmingly kills older people. Is a person who has lived into their late 70s, 80s or 90s owed the same priority to preserve life as a person in their 20s or 30s who typically has more than 50 years still to live? 
Many seniors have had time to enjoy careers, children, and grandchildren. <laughs> My father is 68 and insists he's had a good run. With the swimming pool and tennis club in his Victorian town now closed, his daily pursuits are off limits. His physical fitness and mental well-being are suffering. Many seniors like him would not put their own life above the livelihoods of their children and grandchildren if the economic and social costs are too great. Dad, I know, I know, you would like to get sick and die, because otherwise it might cost me sick. No, I know, you've had a good run. No, and I know, without the tennis, I mean, is it even worth you going on? I know, Dad, I know. You don't have to say anything. Shh. Shh. Where was that written? Where was that published? The Australian Financial Review today. The Australian Financial... That sort of shit should be... That's a manifesto, okay? That's what a fucking psychopath leaves behind after shooting up a school. This is insane. Dad, you're you're 68 now. You wouldn't want to impose on your children and grandchildren. You'd be okay. These are the same people who would have been opposed to euthanasia legislation in Victoria last year. What the fuck is happening? In terms of the older generations not screwing over the younger ones, I'm willing to bet that that same column was busy advocating the uh, franking cash rort. Oh no, oh no, <laughs> older people need to be able to get paid taxpayer cash, $6 billion a year, just so that as a reward for owning shit. Yeah, I'm not prepared to pay more taxes in order to educate people or, you know, feed and house the homeless, but everyone over 68 should be prepared to die so that Kmart can open up again. What the hell is going on? There was that documentary series involving the young old guy from Austin Powers, you know... Where the, everybody dies when they hit 68 and their son starts writing for the Australian Financial Review. You know, <laughs> a <horrific> dystopia. <laughs> By the way, talking of the IPA, and I didn't mention this to you earlier, but you raised them. I did. That's my fault. Yes. Okay. Well, well, then, then you're to blame for the fact that I'm now going to play listeners two bits of IPA audio. So the first one is Gideon Rosner from the IPA uh, with his declaration that Australia needs to be opened right now. The coronavirus outbreak is a serious public health issue and we were right to take action early on to contain the spread. The time to start ending this lockdown is now. But our response to the coronavirus outbreak has decimated our society, ruined thousands of lives, turned Australia into a police state and worst of all, put hundreds of thousands of Australians out of work. Many, many more will join them. More and more Australians will miss out on the dignity of work the hope and opportunity and meaning that comes from a thriving economy, a vibrant society. More and more Australians will be thrown into loneliness, isolation, and worst of all, the total absence of hope. So it's time to start ending this lockdown. It's time that state and federal governments came up with a plan on how to end this lockdown and then told us what it is. It's time to start returning to normal. It's time we were allowed to start rebuilding our lives and rebuilding Australia. It's time these restrictions were eased. It's time to allow for the sensible reopening of churches, restaurants, cafes, bars, community sport. Do it safely with appropriate social distancing measures in place. But do it, not in six months, not in one month, now. Because Australians were not meant to live like this and we cannot allow this to go on any longer. Enough is enough. It is time to begin to end this lockdown now. Uh, what, before the spike of sicknesses from it? Gideon doesn't, for some reason, in his his call to end the lockdown now, in any way assess where the infection rate is, um, compare it with comparable countries, look at, for example, what's happening in countries where they have been really slack about it, say, you know, the United States, 
weirdly, Gideon doesn't assess any of that. But you know, his gut tells him. I know. It's now. just like this, we. It's like we don't have a plan to um, to end the lockdown. We need a plan to end it. But whatever that plan should be means that we should end the lockdown now, regardless of the costs or the reasons why we have the lockdown, which is to stop the spread of the virus that everyone's suffering from and the, the, like the, 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 that's killing people and spreading around the world. Like that's the whole thing is the whole virus thing. And sort of ignoring that. But surely a huge number of people dying won't be that devastating for the well, economy. Well, no. And isn't, aren't people there to service the economy? Certainly. Isn't it that way around? Yes, as long as it's the right kind of people. If they're, if they're people on, you know, 50 grand or less, then, you know, how much taxes are they really paying? How much are they contributing to the workforce? These are all considerations we need to make um, according to the IPA philosophy. I mean, they're either, they're either going two ways, right? The free marketeers. They're either saying, you know, disaster capitalism, this is the chance to slash regulations, burn tape, and uh, lower every possible tax and stuff, go crazy so we can preserve economic activity, the same kind of shit post-Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> or I think they, don't, they know they're not going to win that argument, so now it's like, quickly, get back to normal as quickly as possible before people realise that the entire uh, way we organise society is fucking everybody over. And that we could, we can, in fact, help people as we're demonstrating. Like, yes. the money is actually there when needed. It is actually possible to do these things that you keep telling us are impossible. Yes. Yes, and, you know, the, the um, wonderful job creators, uh, the business leaders that we're told to revere and congratulate these, these people who make jobs and make our society such a better way, turns out they don't really give a shit about people at all and are happy to stand down any and every worker if it means not eating, eating into profits, or landlords who seem quite happy to be kicking people out as quickly as they can if they can't afford to pay the rent and therefore, you know, ordinary people end up homeless. So if we can just distract people from that and get back to normal as, as quick as humanly possible, then uh, the free market won't be under, under threat and more and more people won't get angry at the way things are arranged. Also, it's pretty hard to run the neoliberal. We've got to... Uh, um, have full efficiencies. Anything that's not being used right now, any buffers in the system, any excess capacity, that's inefficient and we need to get rid of it. And the good thing about you know, capitalism is that you can get rid of all those inefficiencies. The problem with the time of a pandemic is that it suddenly becomes immediately apparent what the point of having those buffers was. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's more efficient. It's great to have private hospitals because they take um, the burden off the public system. But during a pandemic, if they can't keep doing cosmetic surgery, they will go bankrupt and need billions of dollars from uh, the state in order to keep running. So it's, it's much better that we have this system rather than, you know, a well-funded and broad, well-resourced uh, health, health system. It's actually better that we have these private hospitals that could fall over if you, if you blow on the wall. <laughs> and and the, the annoying thing is that we don't even get... We, we're going to be funding them. We're going to do, you know, the classic thing of they privatise the profits in times of good and then, you know, socialise the losses. Mm. We're going to be paying for them, but this government wouldn't ever dare get something back for the taxpayer for doing that. They're not going to nationalise the airlines that they're bailing out. Mm. They're not going to nationalise the public hospitals, so the private hospitals that they're bailing out. Like, capitalism demonstrates in these situations that it isn't a good way of managing these things and it needs the help from the rest of us, but it's just going to get that help from us and then go back to screwing us as soon as it's over. As soon as humanly possible, yes. Back to normal, please. Get us back to freedom. Get us back to being freed by over, freed to be screwed over by the free market. Well, that, I mean, that's that's why this virus is a plot, Tom. Yes. Uh, before we leave the IPA, did you see the this this little stinger from the young IPA podcast? <laughs> I'd love I'd love to see you do the. You look, you have got a stronger stomach than I. You've you've had what Lyle Shelton, <laughs> you've done Caleb Bond, you've done Sam Newman. Who else? Who are the most appalling people? I've had 
I've had Gideon Rosner on my show. Gideon has uh, been a guest. Oh, my God. Mm. Right. So may- maybe the young IPA people like Bolt Jr. and Peter Gregory, mm. they-, they have their young IPA podcast. Mm. And, you know, if, if, if you want to have a podcast about Australian politics that's not recorded by people who half glue, you can listen to this one. <laughs> but otherwise, there's, there's always... There's always the Young IPA podcast. Um, but anyway, this this is... A... I'm, I'm pretty close to having glue, to be honest. I, I haven't taken any illicit drugs for quite a while in lockdown, so I'm not far away, but carry on. Well, I mean, at that point, then you'll be qualified to both... Yeah, you'll obviously then <laughs> choose to listen to the Young IPA podcast, and then, then you can interview one of these guys. So this is young Peter Gregory, who does the, the show with Bolt Jr., in which he... He, he sets the, the the spread of the virus and the fact that it's, you know, gone off the charts in America uh, as opposed to uh, other countries that actually have some kind of public system and pay attention to medical evidence and advice. <laughs> no, no, he knows who's really to blame. Uh, can you guess who's really to blame? Mm, communism? Man, you're good. <laughs> Trump's exactly right in a sense because uh, people are dying because of what China's done. People in Australia, people in America, people are dying. Because of that, I would say he shouldn't be calling it China virus. He should be calling it the communist virus because this only happened because of communism. People have to remember that. The, the, what's it called? The Little Black Book estimated 100 million people died because of communism in the 20th century or whatever it is. You have to add these deaths to that number because the only reason this, this never would have happened... Ooh, knock my microphone again. This never would have happened in a liberal democracy. Uh, they never would have lied about it. Never would have happened to the same extent. People are lying. Our economy is getting wrecked. People are losing their jobs. People are losing their homes. People are dying because of communism. Wonderful analysis there. I enjoyed that. No one's ever lied in a liberal democracy. No one's ever, you know, made up something big about anything that uh, has happened in a liberal democracy. The government never lies to you in a liberal democracy, which is fantastic. There's never been a public health crisis like AIDS or, you know, an invasion of another country based entirely on a lie. Um, I just love it. In liberal democracy, there's no lies and the government always does the right thing. (laughs) And, um, you know, communism is definitely to blame for this cross-contamination, even though, you know, through the capitalist system, of course, people use the bodies of animals for profit and um, really the profit motive would have incentivized people to do crazy shit to bats and, uh, and cut shit up. Hey, hey, if you're suggesting that there's intensive factory farming of animals that, that uh, is actually a vector for disease in the, in the industrial yeah. West, if you're <laughs> suggesting that that could happen yeah. here, then, you know, obviously you're aware of the system. Okay, cool. Fair, fair. Good point. Good point. Well made. I mean, it's, it's just pick your, oh. you know, whack your ideology. You know, it is a... It is a Rorschach test for anything you want to do, right? You just you just look at this prism and despite all the contradictions that, that the coronavirus is exposing about our society, about the way uh, globalized capital works, the way we interact with each other as a society, um, free marketeers and conservatives going to be going to do their thing. They're going to do them. Well, except for the ones that have accidentally found themselves <laughs> in the government. Those ones have to be like, oh, shit. Now, unless we actually want the country to explode while we're in charge, kind of got to do some lefty Gov- shit. We'll do it in the nastiest way, as late as possible. We'll cut as many holes in as possible. I don't know if you heard last week's episode. That's, it's fine. I haven't heard your Caleb Bond episode yet. So I, I just, I, I forgive you. <laughs> I forgive you like, like I'm some kind of creepy. Oh my God. Did you see what that Pontifex? Anyway, we'll deal with Pell in a minute. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, what was I going to say? Yes. So last week we made the, we were looking at, so it's, it's bonkers that we've got, since we recorded last week, um, news polls come out and be like this eight-point jump to Scummo following the, him, you know, adopting some kind of public spending on, on, on human beings, supposedly. But it's it all fits within 
what we've seen about Scummo, which is that he announces stuff, but it's always got huge holes in it. So, you know, the thing with the firefighters where it was like they, all right, well, we'll, we'll pay the volunteer firefighters who can't go to work because they're fighting the bushfires. Except it turned out to be like they had to have done it for, what, 10 days before they were eligible, so for free, with no substance. And then it only was like if they were fighting the fire during work hours. So if they, like, finished fighting it at 9 o'clock and went home to sleep. Uh, like, all these dumb mm. holes. And also the fact that he just instinctively lies about everything, everything from the Hawaii being, I'm overseas in Hawaii, but I'll tell my office to lie about it. There's so much lying about whether his kids were still in school. He's just... Shonky, and you can't trust that anything that he's announcing actually you know, follows through. And yet, so we've, we've had yesterday Parliament went back and they passed versions of the JobKeeper stuff, but they left out. Uh, there are a lot of people who aren't covered by it. Have you been following? I, mean, I suspect your industry is particularly concerned about it because your industry is really badly hit by the huge holes that have, they've put in the JobKeeper. Um, yeah, I mean, please correct me where, where I'm wrong here. But, you know, yes, JobKeeper um, package, $130 billion, sounds good. Um, and then, as you say, as the details come out, people start to ask a few more questions and go, hang on, some really vulnerable people are left out of the picture here. Um, from like my personal point of view as a sole trader who's definitely lost more than 30% of my income because of the coronavirus pandemic, I'm, I'm eligible, but I work for myself. I have my own ABN. I am my own business in theory. Whereas if you're a casual who works in the arts, an industry where you're constantly changing job, you're constantly working contract to contract, and that's basically your entire existence. You, you don't work at one place for more than 12 months um, necessarily, uh, or very rarely do you do that um, on a casual basis, certainly. Uh, this thing kind of completely leaves you out of the picture. Um, we've seen, you know, temporary workers, migrant workers being left out of this um, as well. They're not going to be getting the support they need. And while I admire the calls from the Labor Party to try and do something about that, you know, uh, suggesting all these amendments and trying to get something going, I just think they completely cut themselves, kneecap themselves by saying straight up, we're going to vote for this no matter what. Um, but here are the amendments we're going to try yeah. and get through. Like, it's like, how the fuck do you not understand how any kind of lever that robs you of any kind of leverage or negotiation skill? If straight up you're going to say, "Well, we're going to vote for this anyway," like, what what is the incentive for the government to listen to any of your demands if you've said, "Yeah, we're already on board"? And and if you're also voting against um, similar things from the Greens, like Labor voted with the Libs against the Greens amendments, mm. like just they're like, unless we put it up, we're going to vote against it. Great. Oh, sorry. Good Unless stuff. we put it up, all the Liberals. Right, we will vote for the Liberals ones, just not the Greens. <laughs> ah, so what, 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 were the, what were the kind of Greens proposals that they were hoping to get through that they uh, missed out on? Oh, just to do with extending it to more people, including like the casuals that you're talking about, extending it right. the, so it covers more people. Because what shits me about this, and it's the same, it's the same thing with, well, again, with the firefighters. Like, every time they, the Liberals are forced to make a payment of some kind, they cut holes in it that aren't holes of, like, people who are privileged and don't need it. It's just arbitrary holes that mean people who clearly are in the, a, a situation where they need it just don't hit that hoop, and they just make it cheaper for the budget by cutting people out, but not based on need, just on arbitrary distinction. It's like, oh, cool, well, we've, if we manage to exclude this bunch of needy people, it makes it cheaper, and we, we'll, you know, it'll fix the bottom line when we have to pay for this all later. But it's just dumb luck with which category you're in. And it's also the end result of, again, this kind of technocratic, neoliberal, means-testing mindset, which, you know, I mean, you see it right in the names, job seeker and job keeper, right? We create these two different categories of people. If you had a job, 
that you lost thanks to coronavirus, you're a good person and you're a victim and you're 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 an every going you know everyday hardworking Aussie. You're a quiet Australian and you, and you deserve government support because it's not fair. None of this is your fault. This has happened to you. If you're one of those shitty people who are on the job seeker, uh, uh, you know, allowance before this, then I mean, I guess we'll give you money so you don't starve yourself to death. But you know, pull your shit together. Really, you're you're the undeserving poor, and we need to categorize this and split this up to brutally means tested and to i guess you know entrench further entrench the stigma associated with people on um you know engaging in the welfare system i think both you and i have realized over time that that's not a bug of the system that that you know uh, you know it's just the way we've got to save some money we've got to you know means we've got to try and keep the payments low we've got to try and um you know, it's just a way of making it work. Like, uh, it's a feature of the system that they deliberately demonise that the undeserving poor. Sorry, yeah, undeserving of anything better. The fact that the poor deserve their lot isn't just mm. an excuse to not pay them anything. It's a fundamental. You've got to believe that if you're one of the privileged people, because otherwise, you recognise that your privilege isn't earned, and you sh- you don't you do, you're no better a person than the people who are who are suffering, and so you don't you you have a moral obligation to be helping them and it stops being about, oh, my money comes out to pay for people who, yeah, if they're undeserving, then you can resent it. If they're just as uh, you know morally upright as you are, then mm-hmm. obviously they shouldn't be suffering and you have ob- moral obligations to them. So there's a massive incentive for people at the top to do everything in their power to believe that the people at the bottom deserve it and are bad. And so they just have this compounding thing. They just want more and more media that tells them that the people at the bottom deserve it and are, un- and, and are terrible people and they will – every part of that fits into their prejudices and they'll absorb it more and more and it's just this – and the, the absurd part of all of that is that they, they never acknowledge the fact that having a safety net is something that benefits everyone, including – including people who have jobs, including, like, that being there protects you from being capriciously treated by your employer. The only person who, people who benefit from there being no safety net are employers who want to be able to basically threaten you with starvation if you don't, you know, jump through the hoops. And let's let's, I mean, let's be honest, even though we had a <laughs> quote-unquote safety net, I mean, you were looking at starving or at least going pretty hungry on a new start payment, which is which has been blatantly acknowledged by the fact that they had to double uh, the job seeker payment post this pandemic. Just a clear yeah. uh, acknowledgement of the fact that that was a payment that was keep that was too low that was keeping people living below the poverty line. And the the question now is, you know, what happens post pandemic, post the crisis? Are, are we going to halve that again? Are we going to go back to the system that saw like seven hundred thousand Australians living on these shitty poverty wages? I well, they're going to try. How, how successful do you think we're going to be in stopping them? You and me? Uh, we can do anything, Jeremy. The Labor Party? Not so much. We have podcasts! <laughs> we have a... I mean, you can't step in the way of podcasts that say stuff about politics. I mean, this is it, right? Like, I, I've said this once or twice on my podcast, but in LA, they're housing the homeless, right? They're literally... but They're buying hotel rooms. It's happening here in Australia, too. Homeless people are being put into these uh, into temporary accommodation. They're, they're being housed. And the government is revealing how much money they have, how many resources they have in order to confront this apparently intractable forever problem that we have of people living, sleeping rough. You put these people into houses, the crisis ends, and what do we say as a society? We say, okay, time to go back on the, on the street now. That's where you live. That's, what, that's the standard that we accept. That's an acceptable version of society. Uh, we're going to kick you out now, even though it's in everyone's interest from a public health point of view for everyone to have a house plus the fact that if we acknowledge that housing is a human right and that a moral society a decent society wouldn't tolerate homelessness 
I mean, how yeah, how much is seeded back after this is very interesting. The childcare thing is very interesting too. Like, you know, a parents going to be stoked about having to pay exorbitant prices for having their children looked after again after this? I, I don't know. The government says it's all temporary, of course, but, you know, um, I think the Labor Party, if they had some fucking guts, could make a lot of hay out of the idea to say um, we, we can't go back to normal because normal wasn't good enough in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, that's a really reassuring thing up until the point where you said if the Labor Party had any guts, and then it all fell apart. <laughs> Sorry. Have I ever ranted about this to you before when you've been on about... It always seems like we're lunging further and further to the right. Public services are constantly being cut. We're constantly giving tax cuts to the rich. The money's coming out of the system. It's always the ratchet in that direction. You know, the, the ratchet. The, the, it's, you know, we cut public services when, you know, I think times are tight. We cut that to save money. And then when, when we've got the money now because we've stopped... We've stopped providing public services, then we give it away to the rich in tax cuts, and then that needs to be paid for, so then we cut public services. The ratchet's always in that direction. And it always, it, it never feels like we go the other mm. way. But then you've got to ask the question, of, well, hang on, 200 years ago, you know, it was, was even worse than this. Like, Dickensian times was, you know, I mean, we were lunging toward, back towards Dickensian times, but obviously at some point in the past, things must have improved for them to be able to wind it back. So when did it improve? Was it following the Great Depression, where they suddenly brought in a whole lot of public facilities and public services because it was apparent what had happened that 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 needed to happen or the, the world couldn't run it had basically run itself down so much that that was the point at which things pushed back to the left a bit and before that you know when we got public schools in the end of the 19th century was that because it had basically got so bad for the poor that, that you know they were going to be rioting is it that these horrific times things like depressions and and wars and the tail end of, of the industrial revolution that sort of thing is that the point at which we got all of these public services and is this going to be potentially if we can seize on it is this an opportunity to pull it back is this the time that we've been looking for <laughs> not, not in the sense of a horrific virus that kills people but in terms of something that is a giant um, shift in the in the world that pulls it back to recognizing that yeah, of course we can bloody do these mm. things. And if the people who are who have been just saying, no, we can't, have to shut up for a minute because it's apparent that their system doesn't work, like there's something so obviously staring them in the face saying, no, <laughs> like we're going to be dying on the streets very suddenly. Mm. And I mean, maybe that's the thing too. Maybe it's it got it threatened to get so much worse so quickly as opposed to the slow, gradual slide into some kind of you know dystopian hellscape. Maybe this, this threatened to happen so quickly that it became apparent that we had to do something about it. What I'm trying to say, Tom, is is this can we, is this an opportunity for things to get better? Is this the best opportunity we've had in our lifetimes to push things back the other way? Um, I believe it's that opportunity. Whether that opportunity will be taken is a very, yes, is obviously a huge open question. I mean, you know, I can't help but look at the US and think if if this does not convince people as to why a Medicare for all is better, why it's better to have public, you know, public health care when, you know, you've, people's health care is entirely wedded to their employment and then you've got millions and millions of, of Americans losing their job and therefore um, have no health insurance dying. whatsoever and dying because they cannot afford health insurance during a fucking, pa you know, pandemic, a health, public health crisis. If that doesn't, you know, fundamentally undermine the, the crazy logic that country is operating on, I don't know what will. And it's just as easy to imagine. Narrator. <laughs> Narrator. It didn't. You saw that Bernie's pulled out. Yes, I know. It's Biden. Know. It's fucking Biden. I know. I'm fully aware. So and we're I'm screwed. And I'm going to drink lots. It's the afternoon now. It's allowed. But I mean, you know, I, 
it's just as easy to imagine from you know a Morrison government point of view is to be like, okay, it's austerity now, everyone. Now we don't have any money. We spent all that money trying to preserve the Australian economy. Now it's um, austerity on steroids. And we don't have money for the arts. We have absolutely no money for any kind of serious climate action. Yeah. We've got to dig up more coal than ever before, you guys. We've got to get this, this puppy started again. Um, it's very easy to see it see, go That's that fine. way, particularly when, you know, the Labor Party, you know, loves itself a bit of neoliberalism itself. Well, keep in mind, the $130 billion this, is, this thing has cost is still less than the $158 billion of tax cuts they voted for just last year. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they're saying they will not, they won't change their mind about the, because um, the next stages of the tax cuts are the for really rich people. They, they are the very expensive aspect of the whole thing. They're for a small proportion of the population. And they're the ones the government's going, no, we're not touching franking credits. We're not going to um, bring back in the tax cuts. Because, of course, that's the biggest principle for them. Which means that, you're right, they're going to try and squeeze it out of the poor mm. again. Where else is the money going to come mm. from? They won't take it from the rich. All they'd have to do is say, these tax cuts that we thought we could do, that was at a time before this pandemic. We can't do it. We've done the ones that... You know, most Australians benefit from. We're not going to do the the ones at the no, end. No, obviously most they could. Most of the money will come from charging people for playing backyard cricket <laughs> and encouraging the cop side of Australian nature to dob in their neighbours at every possible opportunity to report anyone who they think might be you know thinking about transgressing social distancing laws, uh, facilitating the police state, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, and making us all feel more afraid and fundamentally attacking and reducing solidarity across the board, which is exactly what we need right now, I reckon, Jeremy. We need to turn on each other as ordinary Australians at every possible opportunity and live in constant fear whenever we leave the house. I think that's the real solution to this pandemic. Oh, but Tom, the, the Premier of Western Australia made a joke about the Easter Bunny, so it's all okay. <laughs> yeah, no, we are... We're a nation of bloody cops. Like, I love... I, I, and you can tell it. Like, it's the classic thing of, you know, a person who insists that they're honest is a liar. A person who is... Like, people, if they're really trying to emphasise some positive virtue, clearly it's a thing they do not do not have. And so you can see in Australia uh, taking Ned Kelly as a great hero. It's because we're a fucking nation of yeah, cops. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't like looking at myself that way. Nah, we like, we like, the, we like, the, the, we like that one. Yeah. We like that outlaw. We're laid back. We love larrikins in Australia. Now, you can't smoke anywhere. You've got to swim between the flags. And if you, if you, uh, you know, play video games with your friend next door and I can hear you through the walls, um, I'm going to call the cops and you're going to get fined, you know, 10 grand. Oh, look, these people might be refugees, but did they come the right way? <laughs> the arbitrary right way to seek help? You know, you've got to jump. You've got to, you know, did they have the right paperwork to come to flee persecution? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, what a country. Anyway, yeah, did you see that they, they also find, um, they find a, a mother and daughter, we should taking her for a, a like, a, on a learned lesson yeah. on a, in the car. Like, you're supposed to be able to go to education. How exactly is she supposed to, do, like, the, the, you know, be a learner driver without getting in a car and drive? Like, that's part of... That's an educational thing. How can that stand up? They live in the same house. How is that even a thing? Well, obviously, she's at great risk of... <laughs> nothing stupid. And Cough, coughing out the window? I don't know. That is actually a big part of... I, I assume that a big part of like driving lessons for kids is winding down the window and screaming as the kid like, tries. <laughs> and, and, you know, the droplets could come out as you wound down the window to scream. Did I just say wound <laughs> down the window like I grew up in the 70s and they was like, <laughs> had to wind the window down with like a handle? Anyway... <laughs> 
I'm old. The droplets, um, guys. I mean, the the bigger point here is that you know it's again it's part of a neoliberal logic. This constant individual view of looking at everything, right, and um, reducing the entire response, the media discussion about. Australia's response to COVID-19 through the lens of individual actions and look at this person doing something shit. Look at this person breaking the rule. Look at this overwhelmingly, you know, um, lower socioeconomic people who are who are so fucking dumb and they're doing it. Look at all these idiots going to Bondi Beach and there's no kind of questioning of or focusing those that kind of um, critique and analysis on the people in power and the broad state's response to this. Really, when that stuff was happening, the Bondi Beach stuff was happening, it was when, you know, a week from from Scummo telling everybody that they should just, you know, gatherings up to 500 are fine. <laughs> oh, we want to go to the footy. Like, the the messaging is the problem. And compare that with New Zealand, where they're basically like, no, we're going to all be on this from the very beginning. I don't yeah. know, just, you know, we're shutting it. The, Australia was so all over the place. Yeah, people got mixed messages. And <clears throat> the Bondi Beach thing was, like, there was really a thing of a whole lot of, you know, people who rely on news court papers, particularly the Australian, older people reading the Australian and the Fin Review and stuff who were like, nah, it's all blown out. It's no more than the flu. It's fine. I don't have to do anything. And yeah. so they were very slow to react and pressure did need to be put on that. But I, I mean, I, I don't understand why there wasn't pressure being put really quickly when people were hoarding all the pasta and tinned goods and toilet paper at the supermarket. You know, that, that would have been time to rush out a, a government advertising campaign being like, you know, you know, a wartime type thing of like using the... Um, Australia being a nation of cops thing for good where, so that people weren't like having a shopping cart with toilet paper stacked higher than they were because they knew that everybody around them would be like, dickhead, yeah, look that- at that dickhead. Like there should have been some kind of social shape. There should have been a public information campaign being, being like, don't do that. Don't be a dickhead. You know, put but some is, pressure on isn't that early on before people do that stuff. Just the inevitable consequence of uh, being told for decades after decades that you have to look after yourself and... We're all individuals and there's no such thing as society. And if you don't take care of yourself, nobody else will. And we don't have obligations to each other, in fact. Um, I mean, I just, the gall yeah. of people constantly telling us to sacrifice things for the greater good from the same people who have sold off public assets, who don't want the government in their lives, who have always wanted to reduce the government to as, as you know as small as humanly possible, and who seem, you know, just fundamentally and ideologically opposed to collectivism and, and thinking about the collective good. I just think it's, you can't have it both ways. You can't flick some giant switch and say suddenly when you need people to act in a mass way, um, like people are suddenly going to do that immediately. And their failures to do that is a failure on our political system and the state, um, not on individual yeah. actions, particularly when you've got, you know, something like the Ruby Princess <laughs> being allowed to dock. And we've seen that's, that's I mean, that's a government failure that's resulted in serious debts and mass infections. And it's now becoming apparent it was Border Force. Yes. Like, like, did you see Border Force's statement trying to be like, hey, that's not our job, stopping boats. <laughs> yes. We've never said anything about that. <laughs> what would you think that's our job? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, it's it's like it, it, they really couldn't have highlighted what a, what kind of people they are. And the corrupt yeah. exceptions. I mean, you know, Victoria. You know, yeah. Again, Daniel Andrews has done some good stuff, but he's getting you know very gung ho about enforcing. He's always been a fan of you know using the police to the max, you know, as much as possible. He's openly been happy to chuck out some civil liberties considerations over the years. But you know, oh, when, hang on, when, Tom. I'm sure the cops that were beating up you know, climate protesters like less than twelve months ago, who were like caught on film beating up people who weren't posing any threat, weren't doing anything. You've seen the footage. 
I'm sure there were consequences for those Victoria Police. Yes, I, I think they oh, were. Wait, they weren't. They were very they naughty. Were, they? No. they got spanked on their bot bots. <laughs> but you know, I mean, the exception. No, no, there was one who had all the neo-Nazi shit on his Facebook, and they told him that was a bit naughty. Don't do it again. <laughs> so, you know, Travis, it's fine. <laughs> we've been through this. <laughs> I mean, you know, isn't isn't like the greyhound industry or horse racing still happening in Victoria or some shit? Yeah, horse racing. I'm not sure about greyhound, but yeah, the horse racing still is. What? Great. Why is? And it makes little to no sense. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, talking of things that make little to no sense, the High Court. Oh yes. I remember there was a time when I was a young, naive, you know, law student or junior lawyer, and I thought, you know, the people who get to the High Court, they must, they must be, you know, the pretty pretty amazing legal minds. They must. You know, they must, you know, they're looking back, they're stepping back a bit from the, the, the general, you know, day-to-day. They're, they're, they're well-versed in the black-letter law. They, they know, well, sorry, not the black-letter law. They're, they're well-versed in the, in the constitutional law and the aspects of, of, you know, the impact of the decisions on, on the country as a whole. And they're there to sort of overturn bullshit precedents from the past, like, you know, terra nullius and shit. And then this high court, what have we had? We've had... The general idea that, that, yeah, they keep agreeing with the government's position that it can have areas where it can persecute refugees offshore without the court having any oversight. Areas where, like Australia, you know when Australia changed its migration zone? It's like area this magical fictional land where the Australian government has power, but the courts in Australia, which are constituted in the same system, don't have power to review what it's doing, and the people in there, in its control, don't have any rights. Like all of the shit about offshore processing and and the bonkers fictions that the Australian government was allowed to create, the bit with Section Forty Four of the Constitution, where instead, okay, admittedly, the the part where the discrimination against dual citizens is is not of itself archaic and problematic and should be fixed, but they can I, I agree they can only be fixed by referendum because it's very clear in the Constitution. But the bit where the High Court interpreted that that uh, MPs, it didn't matter whether an MP was a dual citizen, but if they were eligible to be a dual citizen, that counted. Like, if they could apply for citizenship, which is such a bonkers test, it means that that determining who's in Australian Parliament can be subject to any other country. The other country can go, oh, yeah, people like that guy, they're eligible to be a citizen of our country. Oh, well, <laughs> you can't, they have to leave the Parliament. It's just stupid. <laughs> it's a stupid decision. It's just... Um, what else have they come out with? The the Banerjee thing, where, where even though that whole case was about a public servant anonymously, so in no way reflecting on the public service, like she, her, her Twitter account had nothing to do with public service. It was a place where she, out, you know, quite separately from her job, was discussing political things, um, as if the Australian public service was apolitical, which they clearly aren't. Like the person she was arguing with was someone else at this public service in the public service arguing the government line. Like the public service was allowed to argue one side but not the other. Anyway, that decision that that, that people who work for the APS can't even anonymously have free free speech to discuss political matters. Bonkers. So many bonkers decisions. The, the fact that the um, government got away with... The parliament said, no, you can't have a referendum or... What do they say? Uh, you can't have a plebiscite on the uh, marriage equality issue. No, we're not going to put that up for a vote. The parliament said no. So the government was like, uh, okay, it's a survey run by the Bureau of Statistics. And the High Court's like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, that's sure. You can do one of those. Mm. <laughs> like, Jeez. What? No, that's... So the High Court's come up with some really odd decisions lately. I, I, you know, I don't want to piss them off because I am still one day or one day I won't be on. I won't be looking after small children, and I'll be back at work, and I'll be a lawyer again. And you know, it's not a good idea to be bad mouthing the the, the the highest judges in the country. I don't think they got the Pell thing right, though, Tom. 
<laughs> I don't think they did. I think that was a weird decision. I haven't read the decision because I'd found it too depressing. Uh, you have what? What exact? What was the basis of their their general vibe? Just nah. Well, the general or, idea. I've got a feeling in my waters that this guy is okay. What was the deal? It's this weird thing where they've gone and looked at the facts of now. Okay, this is no no longer my area of law, and I'm not. I'm not, this is not legal advice I'm not doing. But what it looks like they did is they've gone and looked at Pell's witnesses. So Pell didn't give evidence, as he's quite entitled not to. But he had all these witnesses that were just like, from the church, were like, oh, no, he couldn't possibly have, uh, you know, this, this was what the habit was. You know, this is, and th- these were the way that we moved around at that time. And this was, you know, how long it would have been out the front and how, like, pretty vague, bloody evidence, not specific to what had happened you know, like 20 years earlier. It was, um, this is what the, th- the thing was. And the High Court's gone, right, all of those improbabilities should be compound. So they should be multiplied together. They compound as if they were all independent of each other and not like Pell could have taken the opportunity or manufactured an opportunity on the day he was intending to do this. Or on one day it happened to be that way and that's when he did it. They've like multiplied these things as if they're all independent probabilities when they're not. They're not independent of each other at all. I mean, yeah, if you, if you do something, if you commit offense, an offence like that on a certain day, then everything that happens on that day is the thing, is the stuff that happened while you were committing yeah. that offence. And while, yes... Oh, you're saying that he committed that offence on, on, you know, April the 3rd. But what are, what are the odds? It's like one in 365 days that he could have picked <laughs> April the 3rd. I mean, you've got to multiply that with the... Well, no, because it was a day he did it. <laughs> right. Weird. The other thing they've done is... So the jury witnessed the complainant and they witnessed these other witnesses. The high, the high Court says that the prosecution, and I haven't read the transcript, but the High Court says the prosecution didn't really challenge the evidence of the church witnesses. But I don't, I don't see why that means that the jury wasn't entitled to go, okay, I accept that that's what they say, but their evidence is also, this was 20 years ago, these are the general things, I don't remember that specific day. Like, that's all part of their evidence as well. So why aren't they entitled to go, you know what, I believe the complainant. I don't believe that those things were necessarily that necessarily happened on the day in question, and therefore that they therefore contradict what the the, vict- the victim says. Which and all the courts from the sorry, the jury in the original trial through to the appeal court in Victoria through to the high court all all held that the that the complainant was a credible witness. And there's no doubt cast on the on the complainant as a witness. All it was was the high court's gone. Well, you've got to with these um, church witnesses, um, you know, because they weren't held out to be liars you got to accept that they you know when they say this was the, this was what happened at that time you got to that's got to give you a reasonable doubt does it what, so, and what does this mean for the jury system is this the high court telling juries well, how they should find the decisions and how they should interpret it well, evidence? The i mean the juries don't give their reasoning for that reaching their decision do they no which is why it's such a bonkers thing like this is really so there is an earlier case called m versus queen which says that that they which set up the idea that juries could over if it was something so out of it gave the court of the high courts an opportunity to review what juries had decided in fact but again this decision is not not one where they've sat down and referred to the law this is not a court of, of law reviewing the decision you know the directions given by a trial judge or any of those sorts of things or this is simply a court higher up who unlike the um court in victoria the appeal court didn't even view the video. They haven't witnessed the evidence, even on video, in, even to the extent of watching a video. They've just done it on the transcript, and they acknowledge that juries have the advantage of being able to see witnesses, make determinations in things that aren't just in the written word. And then they've gone, yeah, but we've read the written word, and we don't think that we think that there's a reasonable doubt there. 
but they didn't have any of the advantages the jury or even the court of appeal in Victoria had of actually seeing the witnesses, seeing that evidence, mm. and and they've substituted their verdict over the top. Yeah, right. Like it asks it basically um, begs a lot of questions about what the point of is of a jury now. When and and also what's going to happen to the the criminal justice system now that anyone who's got the money is just going to appeal, 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 appeal. Doesn't yeah. matter what the jury decided. Try again. I mean, by that logic, you'd be like, why have any uh, witness um, testify or give their evidence in person? Like, why wouldn't everyone just write down, you know, effectively create a transcript for every single case that you can just present to everybody and they can just, you know, accept evidence that way? If if we accept that it means something to see somebody either on tape or in person give their evidence, if that if that speaks to something about an idea of justice or about the way evidence is given, um, if the highest court of the land can just read a transcript... Uh, yeah, why, why, why do they have those superhuman powers to be able to determine what was and wasn't okay for a jury to find in a in a lower case? That's bizarre. Yeah, I don't. I I just think it's a really weird and dangerous decision. And like, I'm not, I'm don't do criminal law anymore. It's a long time since I've done criminal law. But um, but of course, I mean, it's it, it, the reaction regardless. Bongs. I mean, yeah, people were saying this is probably how it was going to go, and you know, people following the case much more closely than, than than I was certainly sort of thought. You know, this is the high court is probably going to see him walk out. But uh, I mean, it's it's just bizarre, right? It, which it, which makes me doubt my. It makes me doubt that what I what I what I've read in that and what I think it says because if all the people who are experts in the area anticipated it, then what? Why did they anticipate the high court going? Or did they anticipate it because of the way the High Court was asking questions earlier? Like, why did they anticipate that the High Court would go, you know, we can just override, we'll just substitute our our view with that of the jury below? And the compounding probability thing is just so weird. Such a weird approach to logic and evidence of something that has happened. It doesn't, it just seems odd to me. And it's also so, so bizarre, like the reaction to, of course, you know, the Pell defenders and the right wing nutjobs, like Bolton stuff, are saying. Well, they're know, now demanding the, that Victoria, that, you know, that the Victorian system be, you know, that all the, the Victorian Court of Appeal judges have to be sacked now, according to the Pell's defenders. Right. Like they, they need to be sacked for, for dragging an innocent man through the mud. Now, let's be really clear the High Court didn't disbelieve the complainant, they did not say that, that Pell didn't do it. Um, and look, if Pell wants to go on a on a, a, a um, try suing some people for defamation who've been saying he's a pedophile, love to see it. Love to see him try that on the balance of probabilities. He won't. He bloody won't. He'll be too busy with the um, civil cases that are being brought against him. I think there's about eight of them in the can that are coming down the pipeline to try and um, to sort him out. Uh, which uh, have you watched Revelation on the ABC? Did you watch that stuff? No, I didn't see it. Did you see it? I... Yeah, it was it was just disgusting and heartbreaking and awful. And um, and harrowing, to be honest. Um, but certainly, you know, the 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 lawyer for the witness is a witness. Jay, is it? Um, was saying that you yeah. know she's got about eight other civil cases, um, you know, being prepared uh, specifically based around Pell. Um, whatever happens with with this current case, so so there you go. And when's Porter going to release the redacted parts of the Royal Commission that mentioned Pell that were held back because of the trial? I suppose it was potentially possible that the High Court could send it back, maybe. Anyway, that's finished now. So what's Porter's excuse for not releasing that evidence? Uh. (laughs) He's our friend and we don't want to embarrass him. I mean, watching Revelation was just a reiteration of, like, you know, despite, you know, if obviously the criminal charge is not upheld and for now George Pell is a free man. um, I mean, just it was just, again, another summation of the absolutely disgusting, cruel... 
an offensive approach that the Catholic Church has taken to abusers. Um, George Pell personally's support of and dismissal of victims. I mean, just across the board, everyone should leave the Catholic Church. I'm sorry. If you're part of the church, get the hell out of there. You can't reform that place from within. And it should be considered a travesty um, that they have acted and continue to act the way they do when it comes to survivors and, and the treatment of abuse victims, while at the same time still somehow managing to assume the moral high ground and tell the rest of us what we should and shouldn't do in our bedrooms or with our society. It's a disgrace. Yeah. And, and you're right. No matter what, what happened in regards to Pell himself being a pedophile, it is clearly true that he was the person running the Catholic Church's response to try and drive away and crush victims speaking up, make it impo- as difficult as possible for them to get support and cover up as much as possible for the priests who were doing this stuff. Even if Pell himself hadn't done it, which, again, you know, that's that's not what the High Court found. They, they didn't find that he didn't do it. Anyway, they, they just found that on their own odd um, calculations, it, we, we, there was a reasonable doubt. But anyway, you know, Pell himself was the guy who's making all these... He was running the whole response. Yeah. You're right. Like, you know, if there was a... All the decisions are being, you know, the, this is not about the Catholic Church's response. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, that that The pedophile case against Pell wasn't. But the other issue, which isn't a criminal case, about how he's done it, the moral case, the public case, the the public case about what, what kind of person George Pell is, there's plenty of evidence in support of that. I mean, for the Ballarat Diocese, there's just, just, you know, Ridsdale, hundreds, hundreds of victims, hundreds of kids, and, you know, the silencing of anybody, not just victims but and survivors, but also uh, people who clearly would have known something. The, the, the culture of silence, the culture of just moving around these pedophile priests when we, you know, when they knew exactly what those priests were doing and what they were capable of and the fact that they didn't say anything would absolutely result in the continuing abuse um, and effectively torture of young people for decades and decades. It's just, it's fucking gross. And I mean, the response to the whole system from, from you know, left-wing or progressive media, from people like, you know, Gay Alcorn of The Guardian saying, look, it's the system working as it should, um, to, yeah, the crazy Bolt saying, uh, look, the system is rotten. The system that convicted him is bullshit and wrong, whereas the, you know, the, the, the bit where he got off, as I always said, he should have, that's the correct bit and we should all follow that. I mean, it's, yeah, it's some pretty warped and um, very confused and incoherent approaches to the criminal justice system and what, what the fuck it does, you know, and, and how it's operating, particularly when it comes to sexual violence, which we know is not great. Yeah. Probably should have put a trigger warning at the start of all that depressing subject. All right, let's let's talk about something from this week that isn't depressing. Yes, I'm trying to think of one. <laughs> um, uh, well, um, there's lots of teddy bears in windows that so the kids are enjoying walk, looking at as they walk down the street. Have you got a teddy bear in your window? Oh, are you aware of this? I haven't seen that. I've seen some. I walked past the house the other day. They had John a photo of John Cena, the wrestler, sticking out the the window. That would terrify children, I assume, but that made me laugh. So I've enjoyed that. Um, I mean, look, you know, you've got to focus on the positive. <laughs> Put your John Cenas in the, in the windows. For all the <laughs> That's what the kiddies will enjoy. There's this one guy, maybe you can put him in the show notes. There's a guy called Alex Makes Meals. He's got this incredible GoFundMe, and it's just this young 20-year-old dude who's just set up a system that provides free food for healthcare workers, you know. I mean, we cannot, as progressive people, ignore the fact um, or deny the fact that there is there is an extraordinary amount of good and solidarity and mutual aid popping up all over the country and indeed the world, Um 
And again, the opportunity we were talking about, we hope that more people can see the cracks in the system, right? And can recognize that, you know, when the shit really hits the fan, all we have is each other and all we have is, um, you know, the, the the basics of, let's say, a social democracy at the very least. You know, the, the, the idea that a society exists so that we look after each other. People's immediate natural response to this kind of crisis is, you know, turning to the state, the government, and the way we pull our resources to look after each other. I think that's that's a good thing from a leftist perspective. And, uh, we well, and that we've seen that, that when 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 we need to, when the government needs to find the money, yes. it's there. It's there. The government can do it. Every time they say, no, I just, not possible, it's a lie. <laughs> and we've seen that it's a lie. We know it's a lie. Of course it's a lie. And how it's dumb. I mean, I tweeted, remember when we were talking about 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act? Right? Like, just like, you look back at the things that we spent time and energy on debating in the public square as politics for so long. It just, all of that just looks, seems ridiculous right now um in retrospect and i still believe yes the post-covid world will see a reorganization of our priorities and you know fighting for a better world that's what i believe anyway through the medium of podcasts obviously <laughs> tom do you have anywhere that you would like people to i think your thing at the end of your podcast is to ask where where, where people would like what what things people would like listeners to support something that they would like a do you have it somewhere you would like people? I mean, obviously, uh, treatment for refugees is still <laughs> like we're just everybody who's in detention, yes. immigration detention, is still just stuck there at great risk of catching the virus yes. and it's spreading. Um, they're not being uh, released or looked after. So I suppose mm. refugees and they can't get visitors. The Melbourne immigration detention, on, you know, um, accommodation, uh, they've just stopped visitors there. So people are already vulnerable and in a very shitty mental health uh, situation. Just can't see people who provide them a small amount of joy and comfort. Um, that's insane. The guys in the Mantra Hotel in Preston in Melbourne are, uh, you know, it's a severe... I mean, you see this in prisons across Australia and around the world as well. Just like, just awful um, public health situations. So yes, Refugee Legal is a fantastic organisation that helps out the legal interests of um, people seeking asylum and refugees in Australia and people in detention. If you can, please support them. That would be great. They are always great. And I mean, yeah, just food banks, anyone providing basic resources, food and that kind of stuff to um, people doing it tough, you know, uh, do that. I'll give you that link to that Alex Makes Meals thing. He's, he seems pretty cool. Um, so yes, if you have money, if you're lucky enough to be in a comfortable position compared to other folks at the moment right now, uh, spread the love around, please. Do you have any tips that you'd like from, from your experience of, uh, of quarantine life you'd um, like to share? <laughs> Uh, have a boyfriend. That's my hot tip. That's the one thing that's been getting me through uh, darker times is have have a nice person who lets you kiss them and, uh, you know, you get to hang out with and uh, can laugh at the situation with. That's been very helpful to me. <laughs> okay. No, not something people will necessarily act on at the moment. Did you see um, Brock... Beck Shaw, Brocklesnitch, uh, had a piece there about how, how do she's finding it. Because if you're stuck by yourself and you don't have hugs, like, you can't... Mm. No human touch. That's so. I don't know if we need a trigger warning before like rubbing that into people who are stuck in that situation. Because yeah, I I feel like you've got couples, people who are like there with their partner, pretty good way of dealing with quarantine. Mm. You got people who are stuck by themselves, which I think would be really shitty. And then you got people in the middle who are with their partner, but also small children, who are you know <laughs> not necessarily the best of both worlds. But I mean, the, when if you ask me, what's the what's my what's my um, my tip for quarantine. Uh, the only thing I can think of today is like activities for trying to uh, entertain and, and, and keep. So little toddlers, 
little toddlers get some contact from the supermarket and they, they can pick up leaves as they're going around. I don't think that's a, co- a, a coronavirus risk of great... Is it? No, picking up leaves isn't really... not going to catch coronavirus from leaves, are they? Anyway, they can put them... You get some clear contact and they can put them on there and fold it over and make a stained glass window out of leaves. Oh. People come to this podcast for, for arts and crafts for toddlers. That actually sounds really yeah. good. Nicely done. Good, it's quite, good father. As the sun comes through, the pretty light comes through, just just leaves in clear contact sticky tape to a window. You know, <laughs> it's rough and ready, but, you know, it kept us sane this afternoon. Nice. And then we got to discuss Australian politics. So that's the other thing. Obviously, a big part of dealing with um, quarantine has been starting podcasts. <laughs> the world needs more podcasts. Yes. Listen to podcasts, friends. <laughs> that's, that's where the answer and the truth lies. Yes. That's the only way we'll get Yeah, through. listen to them. Don't start them. <laughs> no starting those podcasts. End your podcast. There's enough podcast. If, if you have one, end it immediately. Yes. Talking of, I'm going to end it now. So, Tom, thank you for coming back. Thank you, Jeremy. Lovely having a chat again. An honour. Stay safe. And we will look forward to... Uh, well, we'll get you back to your second record next week. <laughs> I didn't warn you about that. Of time. <laughs> Tom's like, wait, what? what? Don't we agree to that? Also, thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Uh, particularly thank you to two new Patreon subscribers this month. Uh, Elise and Mel, thank you very much for coming on board. Thank you, Alex Lund, for the artwork. Thank you, Robin Gray, for the music. And we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Communism. Right. Communism. With all their beady little eyes and flapping heads are full of lies. Right. Communism. Right. Communism. We need to form a full assault. Yeah. Communism. Right.